Making It Plain, a podcast dedicated to discussing real issues that impact Black communities, Black families, and Black women. Your host, Dr. Key, is dedicated to discussing Black issues in a way everyone can relate. Welcome to Making It Plain podcast. I am your host, Dr. Key. In this episode of Making It Plain, we are discussing career impact of COVID-19 on women with Dr. Capriya Johnson. She is the Associate Professor and Department Chair and an excellent researcher. Welcome, Dr. Johnson. Hello, and thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Well, listen, I really wanted to get into this discussion of this impact of COVID-19 on women. I think that because we've been in social isolation or social distancing for some time now, um, many people are starting to look at what does that mean for women? A lot of um, blogs are coming out talking about um, how this may impact women who have multiple roles as caregivers within their families, as well as um, they may be a wife, they may be a single parent, um, and parenting and all these different things that are impacting women right now. You know, all their multiple roles are all coming together and they're at home in all these roles at the same time. So in your view, what challenges particularly exist for women? Absolutely. And that's a great question because there are several um, challenges that we knew were going to happen. And then there's several challenges that keep popping up. I call them the unknown challenges, things that we didn't think about that may pop up um, that may present itself as a challenge for women. One of the things that I think you kind of touched on a little bit was the idea of um, my career, right? So what happens with my career when a a pandemic of this size hits. This is not like um, the flu, the normal flu. It's, it's not the same thing, right? This is a pandemic where people are out of work and our kids are home, right? And many of the, a lot of parents have been talking to me about how their responsibility, you know, quadrupled with homeschooling their kids at home, but they also still had jobs that they had to manage at work, right? So they still mm-hmm. have their work responsibilities. They still had their caretaking responsibilities of the household, right? The normal things we do when we come home from work, right? We get home from work, we cook dinner, make sure the kids are okay. They still had those responsibilities on top of this added stress of homeschooling, on top of the added financial stress. So the, the challenges that I see uh, for women in particular in terms of work is that it could potentially set back careers, right? The idea of being able to work a double, the idea of being able to work until midnight on your work, on your research, on whatever job you have, has kind of disappeared because of so many other responsibilities that are now placed on us. The school system actually was a, I mean, obviously everyone knows, it was a gigantic help, right? When our kids go off to school, we have those eight hours free And if your kids are in after school activities, we have nine hours free where we can get things done for work, you know, uh, organize our schedules so that we can get home in time to cook and do all of these other necessary tasks. But with the kids at home, parents are interrupted. Moms particularly are interrupted every hour uh, just trying to get through some normal day-to-day things, right? So you gave them breakfast, you go downstairs to your office, and then there's a knock on the door as soon as you get in your office. Mom, so-and-so hit me. Right. Those are the types of interruptions that um, in the in the moment, it seems very minor. 
but it actually has long-term effects on their career trajectory, right? I like that you mentioned career because I was reading this blog and the lady said that because she is homeschooling, she is now the cook because she's making breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm -hmm. um, And she's also cleaning the house. She actually works after midnight and she stays up at night just to get her career things done. And her job, her employer doesn't even know that she's working off hours to get her things done. And it's like the juggle of being both a mom, which is a role that that women love um, doing, but they also love having that help to do it, which is school, right? Right. And so now they have to be this career mom, this um, home mom, the cook, the the cleaner, everything all all at once. And it becomes a lot. Um, So I wanted to ask you, um, you know, how does that differ for single women? I know in my career, um, I actually worked on my PhD. I was a single mom. I started the tenure track as a single mom of two children. And I know right now you're a single mom. And I wanted to get your perspective on how some of these challenges may may impact single mothers different from um, just women in general. Right. Absolutely. And that's a great question because one of the things that I think was, again, like I mentioned before, the unintentional challenges that we didn't recognize, right? Um, Being a single mom presents challenges in general, right? In terms of support, uh, the ability to meet everyone's needs as well as your own self-care needs, it becomes a challenge. But you do have that time when the kids are at school where you get a time, you've got a chance to take a breath. Um, when you're at work, you get to meet and interfere, you know, interact with colleagues and you're talking about adult things versus, you know, being at home with your kids nonstop um, presents itself as a challenge for moms who are single moms, right? So the social support that kids get at school is now uh, the onus is on you as the mom, right? The support kids get at school for their work, for their assignments is now on you as the mom entertainment that kids would typically get by hanging out with their friends after school is now on you as the mom. So we have added stress and added work to do that other people who have two support systems or additional support in place um, don't necessarily have all of the burden on them. So I would recommend for single moms like myself, like you were as well, to make sure that you gather your support system and lean on them during times like this, right? People are willing to be there and support us. But what I find is that we're so used to doing it on our own that we just keep moving along instead of reaching out to our support systems and saying, hey, during this time period, I may need you to be on the computer with my kids from 12 to 2, helping them with their schoolwork so I can finish up on my, you know, work for my job. So some women are caregivers as well as parents, meaning they're caring for elderly, you know, uh, family members. And I wonder your perspective on whether they're they're experiencing some similar struggles or some different struggles um, as if they are caregivers of, of people who may suffer from, you know, dementia or just, you know, elderly suffering from, you know, age related illnesses. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, uh, we sometimes we call it the sandwich generation, people who are taking care of kids as well as taking care of older parents. And, and then there's other people who are not even taking care of kids, right, who are just taking care of elderly parents. Because this disease, the way COVID-19 was presented to us um, as a killer of older people, right? It could be really detrimental to older people. I think that elevated the level of stress and anxiety that people who are caretakers of elderly uh, family members or friends 
that elevated their level of anxiety, right? People are actually very scared. So it's the stress of taking care of an elderly person, right? Someone who's older, um, they might have health challenges, making sure they take their medication, making sure that there's no fall risk in the home, all of these pieces, keeping up with doctor appointments via telehealth. But on top of that, you have this other challenge where you could potentially be responsible for um, providing you know, giving a life-threatening illness to this loved one. Mm-hmm. And I think the news, and they framed it, the media framed it in this way as, you know, you know, as awareness. Make sure you're aware that you could be the one to provide this illness to an elderly person, so don't go out, be safe. That's great, but the, the other problem with that is that it added another level of stress to people who were already in the predicament of taking care of their elderly loved one. Right. So not not only are you telling me that um, I could kill them potentially, I think some governors actually said that on the news, like you could kill you could be responsible for killing your grandma. Like, wow, that is really deep. And that's really difficult for people who have to go out to go to work because their jobs can't be from inside the home. Right. And so now I'm also with the stress of I potentially could kill my grandparent, my mom. Right. So I don't yes. think that people thought about the un um, the, 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 these challenges that would have come up based on just how they present information to the public. Right. right? Um, that is a stressful situation to be in. A lot of people talked about how they were uh, moving their grandparents immediately from nursing homes because of everything that was happening with nursing homes. Well, then you go from people who have never who have not had to do that duty of taking care of full-time caretaker to automatically jumping into being a full-time caretaker, keeping up with medical appointments, making sure they have their medication. But also they added on the stress of, and you could kill this person because if you go outside, if you go to the grocery store, if you're not safe. So that messaging, we have to be very mindful of that level of messaging and think about what we're actually saying to people because some people have no choice. They have to go out and get the medications. They have to go to the grocery store. They have to go to work. So there's another level of stress for people who are caretakers. And my recommendation for them is to be sure that they take breaks. You know, develop a plan within your family system for people who can help. Even if it's an hour break in the morning, an hour break in the evening, um, a schedule works really, really well so that you don't stress yourself out and you know when your break is going to come, right? And I think in the middle of the panic um, that many people even got rid of their part-time supports that would help with these elderly caregivers, like um, CNAs, um, the, the travel nurses, stuff like that, um, they were afraid to even let them in the homes to take care of these caregivers, their loved ones, right? Absolutely. So now you have, I'm stressed that I'm going to give my loved one something, but then now my loved one doesn't even have the person that would give me a break, right? Um, so it's added burden because if I allow this person to come in and care for my loved one, then they could give my loved one the same this same um, illness and, and disease. So it really was presented in a way where, um, you know, it, it, it really just caused a panic on so right. many different levels. I think for parents, they didn't have that initial panic because they kept saying that, you know, children were, it didn't seem like children can get it. Right. right. I know you remember that whole Absolutely. Big thing. You know, no children had it. So no children probably are immune to it. Children can't get it. I remember I'm traveling and thinking, oh, the smaller kids can't get it because that's all that they were saying. Mm -hmm. And we know now that that's not true, um, but we didn't have that panic 
as a caregiver would have. Right. Um, the caregivers said, you know, they had a panic for one, their family member had some other illnesses, right? So if you had all these different illnesses and they listed a bunch of them, then you were more prone to catching COVID, right? right? So now I'm looking at a family member who's now prone to catching COVID. I could be responsible for giving it to them and I can't get any assistance from anyone else because they can also give it to them. Absolutely. And and then on top of that, if you then put on top of it, the racial disparities as well, yeah. right? The, the diseases that they were noting as comorbidities and that can enhance, you know, adverse outcomes of COVID-19, of recovery, or things like hypertension, high blood pressure, um, heart disease, a lot of things that disproportionately impact the African-American community. So those caregivers, on top of the stress we already noted, have that added level of stress, right? Um, so there, there were so many layers to this in terms of how people, um, the stress level, how it shot from zero to 100. I mean, I, I had a, a, someone describe it to me in that way. Her stress level went from zero to 100 overnight just mm-hmm. because of every, all of the different layers that were mentioned on the news and it was bombarded. So it was nonstop information about COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, has, that can have an impact on people's mental health. Right. So that's the other part that people haven't been talking about as much. And I think with the recent, there was a death of a, um, a medal. I think her, she was an ER doctor and she yes. committed suicide. Yes, she did. And that was just so devastating to so many people. And people were confused. How could that happen? I don't understand. Um, and I even read a comment that said she had a, a, a MD. Why would she commit suicide? Right. It's well, like, it was, well, for one, um, and I really looked into her story because she was a caregiver of people, watching so many people actually die alone, right? Her patients that she was working with, she yep. actually caught COVID-19 herself, right? And then could not be at work to help the patients. And so all of that pressure, right, was on her shoulder. And so thinking of all the people that died all the way she couldn't help because she actually got sick was a lot for her. And I think we try to judge, but mental mental health during this time is really big. You can cut on the TV and get anxiety. Yes, Just absolutely. from watching the TV and the panic of all the different things that we're opening up the country. We don't care. You know, um, people are just going to die. We're just going to have to let these people die. And then now you're like, okay, do I stay in the house all day? You're like, do I not move? Right. Right. Um, and so it's a lot of panic surrounding and we're going to dig more m- deeply into mental health and, and what does that mean for women right now? Because I think for women particularly, mental health is going to be a big, big topic that we need to really dig into. Um, but I wonder, are Black women experiences different from other from other women? And I want to get your perspective on that. You talked about race a little bit and some of these um, different diseases, right? The racial disparity. Um, so, so what about Black women right now? Yeah. And, you know, and this, this is an interesting piece, right? Because I think in general, women are stressed. They're feeling the brunt of the stress right now for everything, right? I mean, disproportionately women are talking about how they are now the sole provider for everything. Like you said, the chef, the homeschooler, the teacher, everything. But I also do believe that there are added stress, stressors on Black women. I do think that the stress level is different. I do think that the stress level is elevated for Black women. Um, And I will say a few things about that, right? 
one of the things that I think people are forgetting is that things are still happening with the police and Black men and Black people, right? Mm -hmm. And we know from the research that looked at um, the Trayvon Martin case and all of these pieces on how women were the warriors and the protectors of these, of men, of our boys, of our kids, of our husbands. We are worrying about them as they maneuver in this new world, right? Then you have uh, face coverings. So now you have to have face coverings on, right? Yes. Um, before the face coverings, you couldn't even have on a hoodie because that looks suspect and that was scary. So imagine sending your son, your husband, your uncle, your brother out into the world with a face covering on now where only his eyes are showing how, and maybe he has on gloves too, because he's trying to protect himself. How quote unquote suspicious does he look? And now as the mother, as the sister, as the aunt, how worried am I about just him going out in the world? And will he be okay? Will someone think he looks suspicious? Mm -hmm. We then have, you know, documented cases of new things coming up. Uh, You know, Ahmaud Arbery being jogging in his community and being shot down right? That adds another level of stress onto Black women because on top of, you know, everything else that's happening, we have to worry about that. We also are worrying about those comorbidities, right? We know that these comorbidities are impacting Black people more than white people, right? It's Mm -hmm. white, Black men, Black women um, die from heart disease more than white men and white women. So these are stressors. These are physiological stressors that are on us. As soon as they mention on the TV, someone with diabetes has a higher chance of dying. Someone with heart disease has a higher chance of dying. And I'm sitting here and I have heart disease and diabetes, right? You know, that is, that's how the stress compounds on to black women. And then you're worried about your kids and your safety. Like what, what would this world, what is this world going to look like when we come out of the pandemic? Everyone's losing their job. People are getting desperate. Are people going to be getting angry as well? Right. Right. So those are the levels of stress that black women are thinking about. Um, someone, I was reading something yesterday that talked about the jobs, the different jobs and how this is also impacting um, the Latinx community because a lot of jobs that they had did not come with uh, benefits for unemployment. Perhaps they were jobs that were working underneath the table. Yeah. There are jobs where you can't just decide that I'm not going in. I'm going to work from home. If you're a house cleaner, you can't work from home. If you have any of those types of responsibilities that don't allow you, you have to, you are forced to risk your life to go out in the world, to work at a grocery store, to work for your cleaning business, to do any of those tasks, um, you're forced to risk your life. That's an additional level of stress. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there is a lot of people who are able to work from home, but mm-hmm. there's a gigantic population of minorities um, in particular who were not able to work from home and who are on those, who were represented in those pictures of the packed subway station, right? People weren't going to parties. They were going to work. They were going to work at these different places that we love to go to and shop at. Um, that's where they were headed to, right? We look yeah. at the pictures of the bus stops where people were um, shaming people and saying, oh, I can't believe these people would just still be out and about when they should be at home. Well, they work at the grocery store. How They can't be at home, right? They work at Wendy's as um, a cashier. They can't be at home. People would love to be at home, but they are considered essential workers. So they have to be at home. A colleague of mine was discussing how she works at the hospital and um, at the hospital, they were bringing free food for all of them because, you know, working the shifts and they have janitorial staff that's almost 90% made up of minorities. They didn't give them anything. No heroes welcome for coming in today. No free food. 
there, there is a lot that's happening with black bodies and black women in particular, for sure. I do agree. And I think one of the things that, um, I have thought about when it comes to careers is that those people who are working at home and these is mainly black women that I've, that I've spoken to, it's this idea that companies need to micromanage them Mm -hmm. because the black women are not going to do their jobs because they're at home. Mm -hmm. And so it's the need to say, um, this report that was normally doing 24 hours, you can do it in 30 minutes because you're home now. right? Right. Um, and so it's that need to micromanage. And so now they're managing being home, being home with children, homeschooling, cooking, cleaning, being micromanaged to get things in in 15, 20, 30 minutes. Why you didn't answer your phone? You need to be answering your phone when I call. Absolutely. You know, all of those different things just so they can keep their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're talking about a whole um, level of stress that we're putting more on them. Um, if they're getting the job done, we should be managing the work. But instead, we feel the need to manage the people. Absolutely. Different, um, you know, different uh, think check-ins that they have to do now that they never had to do before. I've heard mm-hmm. that request. Um, you know, co- colleagues and people complaining about how now their their boss is asking them to check in in the morning, send an email in the morning when you first get started, uh, keep your, your Google thing on so that we can tell that you're on the computer. Um, if you step away, let us know. If you step away, you know, dock that time from you. It, it's the level of micromanaging has exploded, right? Because they're double checking and triple checking that people are doing their work and that they're making doing the hours versus knowing that these people are human. Like people have, you know, thick real life stuff is happening. As long as the work is getting done, let's let them manage that as they can. But right. um, yeah, that micromanaging thing is a big stressor that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. It's big. It's really huge. And, you know, my next question is, you know, what is the long-term impact of this? Now, I have my own hypotheses about this because I look at all the different areas of stress that women um, are, are dealing with right now. And I really think PTSD is going to be the outcome of this. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and that's an interesting hypothesis. And I could absolutely see how that could um how that could fit for sure. Because this, the level of stress that we are faced with right now, you can't just snap out of it, right? So it's not like, it's, it's like going to war. You go to war and when you come back, if you go to war on Monday and you come back a year from now, you're not automatically whole again because you're back at home, right? You're still dealing with the residual effects of going to war. I think of this pandemic in the same exact way for women. Women are literally going to war with themselves, second guessing themselves. Am I okay? Am I doing enough? Am I managing my household right? Um, the stress of it all will have a lasting impact on them uh, mentally, but also physically. Um, I think that we're going to see increases in things like heart attacks, increases in things like hospitalizations for mental health concerns, uh, drinking, you know, all of these things will definitely go up. And it's, it's, it's sad because I don't think the mental health response has been quick enough and I don't think it has been on point enough, right? So we need targeted interventions for Black women and for the Black community. What level of stress are they under right now? We need to assess that. And then manage that and help them uh, figure out ways to manage those levels of stress. Because I think that stress level is different. I I agree with you. Now, 
I, I read an article more recently, and both of us were in academia um, and we're working um, working women in academia. And so I read an article recently that journal editors are beginning to recognize that they are receiving less publication submissions from women when compared to um, comparing the publications, the publications of women from previous years, and they're seeing an increase of publications from men mm-hmm. during this time. Um, and I just wanted to get your perspective on why is this? You know, what is the likely impact of this on women? Right? Um, because that means a lot. If, if women aren't able to publish, I know personally for myself, some days I just can't get. I don't have enough hours in the day to focus and write. There's too much noise. There's too many people around. Um, it's too many things that I need to do in order to start the writing process where going to the office was um, sort of a sanctuary that I can really get those. I can just say I'm staying late and I'm going to get all these thoughts out, right? Mm-hmm. And I talked to another colleague who's a Black female who told me that um, she's actually still going to the office. Despite everything being closed, she puts on her gloves, she puts on her mask, she takes her bleach wipes, and she goes to the office to get a break from family so that she can actually write and be productive. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's serious. So what do you think the impact of all of this is going to be? Yeah, and that's an interesting point because universities are responding by allowing people to extend their PNT, their their promotion and tenure clock, which I'm like, oh, wonderful, that's great. However, it's uh, you know, you typically it's a one year extension, so mm-hmm. you can extend your PNT clock without any adverse effects on you. But that doesn't account for the way your research slows down or grinds to a halt because of something like this, mm-hmm. right? Um, all, it goes back to things like if I'm doing research in the school system, who's allowing researchers in the school system to do observations right now? Nobody, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm doing research with um, people, qualitative research where I need to be working with people and, and interviewing them, I'm kind of stuck right now. I'm unable to do that. Or people are busy and they have so much happening that they don't want to be engaged in research right now with me, right? To, to, to collect data from them. And um, and for women in particular with their career in academia, this is going to have a substantial impact that we're going to see for a long time because it doesn't only impact, you know, it impacts publications, but publications then impact things like your ability to present at conferences, if you haven't been able to do research in the last year, would you have it be difficult to present new research and new information at conferences? It also impacts mentoring. So your ability to mentor doctoral students, typically black women in particular, we work with a lot of other black women doctoral students, right? They all kind of gravitate towards us and want support from us, even black men uh, doctoral students, right? So that slows down that pipeline for them as well. So the impact doesn't just stay with us in our career. It actually moves down to everyone that we're mentoring. The other piece is it slows down people's PNT, which then ultimately slows down their career. Mm-hmm. If you extend your promotion and tenure clock by, let's say, a year, let's say you might even get two years to extend it because of the way your research has been impacted. Well, then that actually slows down the, you know, when you become an associate professor, which then potentially can slow down other opportunities in administration or leadership that you wanted to engage in. Right. It pushes your clock back for security if you're on a tenure track line where you would get tenure and that five years, it pushes that back to seven years or to six years. Mm -hmm. That's major. People, a lot of people wait to make major decisions in their life based on when they're going to get tenure or when they assume they're going to get tenure. So we might be pushing things back like marriage, kids, 
um, moving, any of that stuff could be being pushed back potentially just by um, a woman's career. Mm-hmm. So, so what should institutions be considering when they're thinking of these current challenges that, that impact women? What should they be thinking about? I think for one, they really need to think and and think long and hard about what the uh, PNT process will look like for people at their university, right? Women and men. What would that PNT process look like if I was going up next year, and you know I have ten publications instead of twelve? Should I be able to allow to go up, right? Because of this this massive interruption that COVID-19 had. I think uh, universities are going to have to think long and hard about what should be their next steps with people going up for promotion and tenure. Think about extensions that should that might be longer than a year, right? I know a lot of universities are considering a one-year extension, but perhaps it needs to be longer than one year. Um, your research, my research stopping for a year may have impact, may have, may have an impact that lasts longer than a year. Right. If I right. cannot collect data this whole year because of COVID-19, I'm not going to be able to jump right back into it next year. It's going to be a two year delay from when you collect the data, then you, you know, analyze the data and then you get a publication out of it that we're talking about two years, maybe right. three for some people. So I think universities need to be thinking about that, having leniency on those PNC guidelines and the evaluation process. We also have to think about classes and when people are getting reviews back, evaluations for teaching. Mm-hmm. We have to think, we have to rethink that. What does that look like now when I had to, in the middle of the semester, switch to online teaching? Your reviews may not be that great. And so we have to think about another way to qualitatively or quantitatively uh, capture evaluation information for teaching. But it can't be the same rubric that we had prior to because this is a different environment. Now, one thing that you said that really stood out was this idea of job security, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, we can be honest that COVID-19 has had a major impact on higher ed, right? And there are major budget implications. And so many institutions are doing things. We, you know, Longwood is furloughing now. Um, Some institutions have done some major layoffs and things like that. So when we think about job security and then we think about people, women being on the tenure track and potentially not being productive. Mm-hmm. And therefore their, their job, they're worrying about their job security, right? Which can also push them into not being productive, even more productive. Um, because security, ideally being tenured is seen, is seen as being secure right. and not and not being tenured is, is seen as not being secure, right? Mm-hmm. And so now they have this added pressure to perform under dire circumstances and um, to really perform and hurry up and get tenure because if not, they are one of those individuals that are um, vulnerable, right? That they could be, and, and, and whether it's true or not, but they, they have the belief that they can be cut at any right. time. right. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it, in a way, it is kind of true, right? I mean, mm-hmm. most universities are not seeking to cut people on the tenure track. However, it all depends on how dire this situation becomes. If this situation becomes dire, people who are tenured, it's difficult to cut people who are tenured. I mean, almost impossible, right? Mm-hmm. Versus people who are in their first year, people who are on tenure track, people who haven't gone up for tenure yet. That isn't, you are in a different um predicament and you are more vulnerable. And I think universities have to take heed and think about this because what I've been hearing and reading about is that this 
COVID-19 issue may come back around again. The only thing that's going to be different is that we're more prepared and aware that it's going to come back around. So we may have a disruption, a similar disruption in the fall. How do we then start to modify our PNT guidelines, modify what it means to be an associate professor so that people can still go up and earn um, tenure and earn that, though, though, those pieces that they have been working for or working towards for the last three or four or five years, right? I think that we have to think about innovative ways to evaluate people on P&T. So if you're going up for promotion and tenure, let's say this is my fourth year, I had one more year to get more publications, to get whatever, to fill whatever gaps. Well, COVID-19 hit. So what other responsibilities have I taken on now? I think that those responsibilities should count for something. If you're on a, a COVID-19 task force at your university, that should count for something. If you had to redesign your course so that it could be online, that should count for something. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we're going to be doing a bunch of new work, new assignments that don't really have an opportunity to be evaluated. We don't have an opportunity to put them on our CV as anything, right? But they mm-hmm. should be counted. And I think that PNT is a chance to count that to say we recognize the work that you've done in the last four years. You recognize the work that you've done in the last five years. We know that research is going to slow down because of COVID nineteen, but we want to give you uh, you know acknowledgement for the work you did on the the COVID nineteen task force on the the helping other faculty members with redesigning their courses. Right, those things can supplement the research stuff. And you can also still say, hey, we are hoping after COVID-19 is over, you get back in, you know, get back in the the loop with research and get back jump started with writing grants. All of that is fine. But I do not think that people's PNT should be held up because of COVID-19, an unforeseen pandemic and disaster. Mm-hmm. And I think that institutions are really going to have to think about what supports they can put in place for women. What opportunities are there that they can really support the productivity of women. Um, Because I really think that this pandemic can really set us back, set women back when I say us, set us back, um, make the the, um, gap between men and women even greater, right? Um, If institutions don't speak up, because right now, um, what we're saying is that they can give women, they can give individuals this one year to get things together, right? Mm-hmm. But potentially that one year can be detrimental to them if they actually take it because they are still more vulnerable to being cut with these cuts. Mm-hmm. In addition, we haven't thought about um, this idea of, of teaching more, right? Institutions are thinking that, you know, people on a tenure track, tenure people, or everyone is going to have to teach more so that we can cut maybe part-time people, right? And so if, if they have to teach more and they're on the tenure track and they're expected to publish and they were only given one year, how are they, how are they ever going to meet the requirements of tenure? It's as if they will never become tenured. Right. It's, it's, it's almost setting an impossible track yeah. to catch up. Right. It's, it, I mean, it looks like a gigantic barrier towards P&T. And one of the ways that universities can help is by providing additional um, support. Right. So by providing graduate assistantship, if you have graduate assistantship work with doctoral students and master's students, you can divert some of that so that women in particular, have access to graduate assistantship support so that they have support with their research. You can also make sure that we're managing and um, expectations in terms of uh, administrative tasks that, you know, a lot of people took on or service, extra service stuff that 
that we take on, a lot of women tend to take on, we can start to divert some of that. Look at our, um, you know, our colleagues and look at our, our employees too from the university level and think about how do we support, better support women as they move forward in the PNT process, as they move forward with their career in academia. And one, one of the ways that we can do that is taking things off their plate that is time consuming, that is service, that makes it difficult to count for anything that they really, really need in terms of going up for PNT. So one thing that I would suggest is, you know, reviewing the women faculty in your department and looking at the service obligations. Can we divert some of those service obligations to others? Can we suspend some of their service obligation roles for a year or two so that we allow them, we give them extra additional extra time to work on their research? Can we also think about diverting graduate assistant support so that we can support women with their research that they're working on, right? So moving some of the resources around within our departments, within our universities, so that women have um, access to support so that they can get their research done. Now, you know, I have to wonder um, your views on the impact of women of color in academia, because I do think there are struggles that women of color in academia have. Research tells tells us that, you know, they're dealing with microaggression. They're dealing with all these different things within academia. And now we put them in the middle of a pandemic on the tenure track and, um, you know, what do you think, you know, institutions should be thinking about when supporting women of color? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And this is just such an interesting topic, right? Because um, one of the, the one of the things that people were noting is that there was a, a, a rise in discrimination against Asian Americans because of the President Trump calling it the Chinese flu. Um, but there's also discrimination against Black women in academia for sure, right? We're, our, our work is sometimes already devalued. The research that we do may already be devalued, hard to fund with grants. All of those pieces still exist in the environment of COVID-19 with a smaller budget, right? A smaller NSF, NIH budget that's focused on the, maybe the research that we're interested in. On top of that, um, publication outlets. I mean, I've received journal um, notes from journals that said, you know, expect longer than usual review times, right? So what does that look like when we submit our research that um, may not get reviewed immediately? It may take longer. So it may be six months or nine months um, for for that review pipeline, right? We also have to think about what happens when we are back in the classroom. When I have a, maybe I have a pre, a pre, um, a, comor- a comorbidity that I have to think about. Maybe I have heart disease and I have a student who decides that they're not wearing a mask. They don't want to wear a mask. I have a student who's coughing. What do I do? There's going to be so many other challenges that come up because people, you know, as a black woman in academia, people challenge you. They mm-hmm. challenge your authority. They challenge how smart you are. They challenge, you know, all of these things. They have questions for you. And do I really have to listen to this person? And so right. now when we're in the classroom and we may be saying, hey, I want everyone to have on a mask, you, you, I guarantee you're going to get some challenges around, do I have to pay attention to you? And what are you going to do if I don't have a mask on, right? Because we have those challenges anyway. We have challenges like that regardless. And now in a pandemic, everyone is on heightened alert. Everyone is anxious and stressed out. And so on top of that, we still have to be Black women in the classroom. So some of that stress and anxiety and anger and frustration that the, the students are facing, that might come out on us. Who do they feel would be the, the group that they can um, be angry with, with the least amount of repercussion, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? 
that's mm-hmm. going to be your black women faculty member. It's not going to be your white male faculty member who is a full professor. They're not going to, you know, snap on that person and go off on that person and be angry or disrespectful with that person. It's going to be your tenure track black woman faculty member who feels the brunt of that stress. Yeah. And I think because of that, we're going to be seeing a lot more in the area of mental health um, for 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 black women, for women overall, but especially for black women who are already dealing with um, a lot of microaggressions, a lot of things coming from both ends um, as far as students and faculty. And then now they are expected to perform in a pandemic with their children home, with their partner home, you know, um, and and wear all these roles at the exact same time. Many of us had all these roles, but we didn't have to wear them at the exact same time. And that is a, that is added stress. You know, it's a lot of worry about where do I fit in academia? Will my, will my position still be here? Mm -hmm. Um, will I ever get tenure? Right. Um, can I hack it? Right. And then you're going to have those individuals when we talk about mental health, we're going to have those individuals who really feel some regret, some guilt, um, because they were not able to be productive, right? People are going to be grieving their careers, yeah, right? Absolutely. Um, and so we have all of this is going to be happening to women, and, and we need to be aware of that. So in your view, what specific mental health challenges could we likely see um, amongst women? Uh, definitely depression, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. increased anxiety. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be the main, I, I could see those being the main two. And we, we're even leaving out our women who are pregnant currently, about mm-hmm. to deliver, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Who are in academia, who were planning. I mean, I, I have colleagues who plan, literally. It's going to be the summertime. This is the time when I'm going to have my, a baby. They literally planned it, but they didn't know that the pandemic was coming. Right. So, I mean, it's all of those levels of stress. So I'm even thinking about them with postpartum. Right. What does maternal mental health look like for women who are in the middle of a pandemic who may be um, challenged with delivering by themselves? I think some hospitals in New York were not allowing any guests in the delivery room. I hope they reverse that at this point. That was horrible. Right. So it's all of these new pieces for women. Um, And then women academics, it's a little different. We sometimes we do like I had my daughter May 29th in the summertime. That was perfect time for me. I have the summer and then I can get back started in the fall. A lot of women thought like that. But now with a pandemic, you may not be thinking that not only, okay, I'm having my baby in the middle of the summer, I can't leave out of my house barely, but also I need to plan for these online, potentially online classes in the fall. Right. Or I really don't know what I'm going to be doing in the fall. I don't even know if I'm going to, my job is going to be here in the fall, right? I mean, it's, it's a, a different level of stress, but I really think we have to be paying attention for depression and anxiety for sure. Those are going to be two main ones. And it, it would be with the social isolation piece, mm-hmm. with the um, impact of the news media constantly uh, sharing negative information about the numbers are going up. There's going to be a, another, you know, another COVID-19. It's going to get worse mm-hmm. <laughs> nonstop. For women, I mean, that is just going to be another level of stress that is going to be difficult to manage and maneuver without the assistance of mental health, mental health support. Now, I recently did a talk about depression and anxiety in Black women. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but depression and anxiety, well, mainly anxiety is experienced um, worse for women, right? We have, it presents itself with 
um, some of the, the worst symptoms that anxiety can have, especially in, in Black women, which I, I can see that this pandemic and all the different things that we talked about, it's just going to really increase those symptoms. Um, anxiety has, you know, symptoms of, you know, being anxious, you know, constant worrying, things like that. But some of the worst symptoms is, you know, dealing with your stomach issues, not being able to control your bowels. I mean, all of Mm -hmm. those things. And it presents itself worse in Black women. Wow. And so we're looking at some extreme cases of anxiety that, that Black women may be dealing with as a result of our current circumstances. And I think that if if we don't, if we're not aware about of this, if we don't do something about it, if we don't put some some systems in place to really support women, especially um, women in academia, women that are um, mothers, like you said, postpartum depression, um, women who are really trying to manage a career and home, we're we're going to look at some. We could be looking at things like suicide, yeah. right? Um, and, and that's very very serious. The case that you spoke about earlier, that was a woman. Mm-hmm. That was a woman with a family, mm-hmm. right? Um, that was a woman w- that her father got on and said, look, my daughter didn't suffer from any other mental health issues prior to this. Right. She loved her job and she ha- served so many different people that this pandemic really drove her to that. Mm-hmm. And we Absolutely. might see more of that if we really don't, if we really don't put some precautions in place to really support women. And um, so thank you for, for your conversation on this. You know, in, in closing, you know, institutions must develop programs and opportunities that focus specifically on the needs of women. Mm-hmm. We need that now more than ever. You know, um, we need programs that cultivate mental wellness, right? Mm-hmm. That really supports their mental well- wellness. Um, we need to remove barriers, right? So these ideas that, that come um, from people who, who have made it that say, you know, I made it through this, that, and the other, so you should be able to do it too, right? We need right. to remove those type of barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, we need supports that focus on enhancing productivity, um, mm-hmm. such as a network just for women. And, and, and I want to put that there because I know that you just developed a network for women, right? Right. <laughs> Absolutely. I right? Call it, yeah, I call it the um the summer the summer women's black research circle, right? And the idea is to be able to develop this network and connect with these network of other black women from different universities over the summertime to keep us, you know, keep our our research agenda in line. But also, I think the unique thing that I I wanted to focus on is also talking about life and having an opportunity to just be a person, right? We're an academic in so many different settings. And so with this research circle, I really wanted us to think about who we are as people. I'm a woman, I'm a mom, I'm a sister, I'm a this and that. So carving out time for us to have those conversations because who else do we have an opportunity to talk to about this? We're stressed, right? But then you have a family member who might say, well, I'm out of my job and I'm stressed too. At least you're a professor. So that it it almost makes our worry and stress, it limits our worry and stress. And sometimes we don't feel like we can talk up about our worry and stress, even though our stress is just as real as anyone else's, right? And so I wanted an opportunity for women to have a, a safe space to talk about who they are as people, as women first. We talk about that personal life talk, and then we get into the research talk, right? So then we have opportunity to really share and keep ourselves accountable to research as well. But I think that personal piece is really, really important because women have very few, especially black women, very few outlets 
to where people want to hear or see our tears, right? We have very few places where we can share um, everything that we're stressed out about because everyone pours into us their stress, right? The stress from the family goes to the mom, right? It's about, you know, mom hears about the breakups and she hears about the financial stress. She hears about everything. Right. Um, So very few places where we get a chance to cry. Very few places where we get a chance to talk about who we are and what we're worried about and what we're stressed about without judgment. And I think when you talk to other academics about who they are and what they're worried about, you feel a sense of um, like they understand, they get it. They understand what I'm talking about being worried about publications versus you may have other friends you talk to, but it'd be difficult for other people to understand the publication piece, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So I think that that part is really important. And universities have to think about systematically developing these structures for women at the university, right? Like you said, program for women, programming for women, that is going to be key during this pandemic. If you want your women to return back to campus, if you want them to return back to the classrooms, we have to start paying attention to their mental health and to their wellness and supporting them in productivity goals and in, and in their wellness goals as well. Mm-hmm. But I also do think that as women, and you know, I'm a big advocate of women owning their careers. And, and I think that we can't wait for the system to, to recognize our needs, right? We can't wait for the system to develop these programs. Now you talked about this network that you developed. You did this on your own. Right. And it's not something that your institution or anyone said, look, you need to develop this. This is something that you came with up, came up with on your own. So I think that as women, we must not allow our challenges to take take hold of us. We have to take hold of them because we need to thrive. Right. And so we need to seek out those opportunities to develop to either develop a network or be a part of a network. We need to seek out those opportunities where we can be authentically ourselves, right? And talk about the things that that we're dealing with, the multiple roles that we're wearing, how it's wearing on us. Mm -hmm. Um, I talked to someone today and I said, and we talked about, you know, having a counselor. It's it's telemental health right now is really big. And I think that women wearing all these multiple hats, they really need to have that time with the counselor just to have that person, that sounding board, that person to talk to about how they feel about the multiple hats that they're wearing, right? Absolutely. Because we have to protect our mental health. Um, and so it's the, the, you know, I think it's part of the job is on the woman to really seek out that help, to put some safeguards in place, to protect themselves, um, to put some things in place that really focus on self-care because mm-hmm. my biggest fear is that the equity gap will enlarge because mm-hmm. of COVID-19 and there's no way we can let that happen. We cannot Absolutely. step back into the past, right? We have to keep fighting and, yeah. and, and I want women to keep fighting, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have to take on some of that responsibility because I can't, say that all institutions are going to do it for us. No, no, absolutely not. We definitely have to let our voices be heard and let people know what we need also. And so I think that self-advocacy piece is going to be really important. And, you know, just the tips that I'm giving my faculty members and colleagues that I work with around self-care, I think it could be beneficial to women. It's just finding, finding your 30 minutes is what I call it. Throughout the day, find your 30 minutes that you have to yourself. You take a walk outside, you go into the bathroom and turn on the shower for 30 minutes, but find your 30 minutes throughout your day, right? Once we get up in the morning, we're going, going, going. 
Mm-hmm. Once we at nighttime, we got the nighttime routine going. The kids got to go to sleep. They, we got to do our our paper. Find your thirty minutes. Well, whenever that is, if it's, I like to take mine during lunchtime where I just sit outside and, and smell the fresh air, sit outside and let the rain hit my face for a little bit. Just find your 30 minutes so that you can collect your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Also, I stop myself from working on the weekends. I do not work on Saturdays and Sundays anymore. I needed to have a set schedule during the week for my work. And I did that. But then on the weekends, I needed it to myself. I needed that break. And so I think we have to be able to put those boundaries in place so that we can keep ourselves mentally sane and also successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. Thank you for that. Because I think um, we have to build our own structures for having breaks. I know for me, if I start to feel uh, stressed, I'm going to go take a bath and I'm going to be in there for a while. So don't come behind me. I'm going to sit there. <laughs> in the water for a while, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we definitely have to take our downtime. Um, Outside is really good. I mean, we can go outside. I think um, the the way the pandemic was presented to us was as if we could not even go outside, right? We can take walks. I I try to get a two-mile walk in every day um, outside just so I can feel the fresh air. And it really changes the course of my day, how I feel about the day, right? Absolutely. So, so we have to take, you know, we have to put some measures in place for our own self-care um, because it's really on us. And we have to put a set schedule in, like you said, um, to buy us some time, whether it is getting up early in the morning because, you know, your family is going to sleep to 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. And you get, you get, you know, three hours in of working on your, your career. Period. Whatever your job is, working on your career, whether it's research or whether you have another job that you're working from home, but putting those boundaries in place so that you can get some things done. But I also think, and to the woman that was working in the middle of the night while everyone is asleep, I feel your pain, but you need some sleep, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have to find a way to make sure you're getting an ample amount of rest, right? And so if she has a new baby, I hope that she's sleeping when the baby sleeps um, because I would hate for her to be burning both ends, right? Um, and not getting rest because rest is going to be so important to mental wellness. So I want to just leave us with a quote. And I want to I wanna say this to women right now. Be focused. Be determined, be hopeful, and be empowered, in the words of Michelle Obama. Um, And I think in this time, we have to be determined, right? Absolutely. Um, This is Making It Plain with Dr. Key. I want to thank everyone for listening, and thank you, Dr. Johnson, for joining us today. Please follow us on Instagram at Making It Plain with Dr. Key. And if you're a woman looking for a network to cultivate your skills, feel free to email me at thedrkey at gmail.com. And if you're an academic, I'll definitely put you in touch with Dr. Johnson's networking group. Thank Absolutely. you. Thank you for listening to Making It Plain with your host, Dr. Key. This podcast has been brought to you by our sponsor, Sparkman Key Consulting, LLC. Check us out at www.thedrkey.com dot com.